Welcome to the SBI Podcast, offering CEOs, sales and marketing leaders ideas to make the number. Hello, everybody. This is Greg Alexander, CEO of Sales Benchmark Index, and welcome to SBI's podcast series. Today, we have a special guest, Samir Joglikar, who is the Executive Vice President of Sales for Renaissance Learning. For those of you that are not familiar with Renaissance Learning, they provide K-12 educational institutions with learning solutions, and they have about 1,000 employees uh, and about 110 sales reps. And prior to this role, Samir led sales at InBloom and eInstruction, spent 10 years at Dell Computer during its heyday, and he began his career with eight years at Apple. So quite a career over a 25-year time horizon, it looks like. So, Samir, welcome to the show. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me today. Sure. So, Samir, you just joined Renaissance Learning, uh, as I understand it. Is that correct? I did. I uh, had the benefit of joining earlier this year, in the midsummer, right at about the beginning of July, as uh, the company started its third quarter. Okay. So you um, still in your honeymoon period? Is that over? <laughs> well, um, I think honeymoon periods these days get shorter and shorter. But uh, I, I would say, from a corporate point of view, a- absolutely. I'm still learning a lot about the company. I think the company is learning a lot about me. Uh, from a executional point of view, I think uh, for any new sales leader coming to a role, your honeymoon period is pretty short, <laughs> and uh, it's it's time to get going relatively quickly. But uh, all is going well, and I'm really enjoying the team I'm with and uh, the organization I'm with. All right. At this point in the show, we'd like to ask you for a fun fact about yourself that the audience probably doesn't know about to kind of humanize you as a guest. So... (laughs) All right, a a little fun fact. Um, Well, uh, I guess two quick fun facts. I guess I started my career, so to speak. I think you talked a lot about my technology background in my career, but I actually started my career, uh, working career, working for a paycheck, uh, teaching little kids how to swim. So that was the the beginning of, of... making a paycheck and making a little bit of a living and helping myself through school and uh, earning some money for college. At the same time, when I was in school, uh, not only did I, I spend a lot of time on the technology side of the house, but also spent a lot of time on the healthcare side of the house. So uh, I have a lot of experience in those two areas. But uh, I, I don't know, I'm a pretty boring guy otherwise. So I'm not sure I have a ton of fun facts, but uh, just a little bit of background about me. Well, teaching little kids how to swim is not boring. Yeah, no, it definitely not. It's uh, the beauty of teaching the youngest kids is they have no fear, so it uh, makes it a lot easier to to get them into the water and get them comfortable with the water. So I'll share a little fun fact with me. Uh, in 1992, I won a national bodybuilding championship at the University of Massachusetts. The guys in the studio right now are laughing like crazy because I got three chins and I ate four donuts this morning. So they're saying no way, but I can show you the pictures. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you've done it once before, so at least you've got it in you to do it again, right? <laughs> yeah, right. All right, let's jump into the content of the show. And I've got a couple of topics that I thought your knowledge would um, contribute to our audience quite a bit. Okay. So the first is around sales structure. And then the second one is uh, working inside of a private equity firm for the first time. So let's start with the first one, which is, um, you know, so you you take the job, you know, your company, Renaissance, was 
uh, grew quite a bit and then was sold from one private equity firm to another private equity firm, which resulted in investment capital and growth expectations. So they hired you, you know, to lead the sales team and, uh, and grow the company. So you hit the ground running. Um, what, how do you decide, you know, kind of what to do first, what to do second, et cetera? Yeah, you know, that, that's one of those things where uh, I think any sales leader, regardless of whether you're new to an organization or been with an organization, I think you're always evaluating this every single sales year and trying to determine what's the next thing that we need to work on or you need to work on as an individual, as a team, to, to keep the ball moving in, in the direction you want to go. I think, Greg, you're right. I was brought into the organization right when the change of ownership happened, or right about just past the change of ownership to uh, another private equity firm. And, and as you indicated, they really wanted to make sure that we were now capitalizing on the opportunity in front of us to continue to grow the business. We, we'd done a great job of growing the business, uh, but I would say we weren't necessarily doing it in a mindful and planned way. To a certain degree, we almost stumbled into it and we were growing the business really because of we had great people, we had great products, and to a certain degree that gets you far enough. But uh, you come to some point in time, and I think every company comes to some point in time where it's not just the product, it's not just the people, but you've got to really ensure you've got the plan on how you start to put these things together. And I think I stepped into the role where the objective and my initial objective was, was how do we build a plan to help capitalize on the talent that we already had, the, the human talent we had, as well as the product that we had in the marketplace, and, uh, and, and help us achieve really the growth to the next level over the next several years. Um, I was real fortunate in the fact that I stepped into an organization that already had a very strong management team. Uh, my team that I inherited was very strong, and uh, our CEO, uh, Jack Lynch, who I believe that you've also mm-hmm. uh, had the opportunity to talk to or interview in the past, he, he's been building a great world-class management team for Renaissance Learning for the last year or so. So I had the benefit of walking into that, and really, you know, the first thing that I looked at is I, I don't want to go break what's already working. So let's go assess what's already working today. Um, what do we got that's happening well? We have a great affinity with our customers, and uh, our, our customers speak very highly of us. Our NPS scores in the marketplace are fantastic, and, and we see great uh, renewals of our products as a result of that. So we don't want to necessarily break what's already working, um, but what I tried to do is take the time to, to step back, look at where are the rough edges that we can now start to improve and start to um, uh, really optimize? And therein began the plan that I put together for really my first six months here at Renaissance Learning to, to build out that plan and start to execute on that plan on how we can prepare our sales team to really take advantage of, of the 2015 sales year. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how we attack the problem and, and how I started to go after the problem. Okay. We need to take a quick break, so we'll be right back. Many sales and marketing podcasts are all talk. Boring, tired advice that sucks valuable time from your day. Had enough? We thought so. The SBI podcast offers executable insider strategies from proven professionals, not useless chatter. Go to iTunes and search for Sales Benchmark Index Podcast and subscribe. Welcome back, everybody. Let's continue our conversation. One of the first things that you did, which I found fascinating, was you stood up a, a new channel, an inside sales team, mm-hmm. you know, fairly quickly. 
you know, when you look back on that now, I mean, how did you know it was the right move? And were there any worries that maybe you were doing this hastily? I mean, what was your thought process there? Yeah, that's a great question. It was a little bit of a, of, you know, it's a risk reward sort of scenario. And uh, I, I think the risk was somewhat of a calculated risk with, with huge upside reward potential for us in the long run. Uh, the thing that we wanted to do is really to determine how can we touch and connect with more customers in a more efficient way. In the K-12 environment, I'm not sure how familiar your listeners are to what the K-12 environment looks like. It's nothing like your typical B2B environment or B2C environment. It's a very different set of buyers, very different set of personalities and and buying uh, patterns. one of the things about that K-12 environment is they really value the personal connections that you can start to build uh, from a customer to a representative, a sales rep in our particular case. And and we felt that the risk-reward of standing up this inside team to really now start to be another direct connection to our customers to start to build and develop more relationships, deeper relationships with more and more customers. Um, it, it just felt like that was the right thing to do. Uh, I'd done that in the past in prior lives, selling into the K-12 environment. Many other companies in our space do that. So the risk wasn't too high on making it happen. I think the biggest challenge was determining just how do we make it work within the, the confines of a company that's been around for 30 years and been doing you know very well for 30 years. So how do we fit this new mode or this new channel into the way that Renaissance Learning um, uh, is going to be moving forward? And, and I think that was our biggest challenge, that we're still tweaking it, we're still working through it, and, and we still have a lot to learn. But I think we're already starting to see some green shoots of, of how well this is going to work for us in the long term. Mm-hmm. You know, you said some things there that were... I want to call out, and that is, you know, your, the company that you just joined has is, is had an incredible run, and they're a leader in their space. I've, you know, in the times that I've talked to Jack, I've, the stories that he tells about what the teachers say about your product and how it improves the learning experience for the kids, is, it's moving, really is. You guys are doing meaningful work. Um, you know, when you think about that environment and you think about inside sales, especially guys like me that have been around for a while, you know, you have this opinion of what inside sales is. And it's probably dated. Mm-hmm. So how over the phone, over the web, over email, can you build relationships with buyers? Yeah, you know, that, that's a great question. I think it, it gets back down to, um, I don't know, the, the way that I think about it really gets down to what what are your buyers going to value the most in terms of that relationship? What do they really care about mm. um, in certain you know, coming from the, the tech industry, I think, as you mentioned early on, when I, I worked at Dell, I, I, I called on and then managed teams that were calling on the, the Global 500 segment of customers and then also state and local government customers. And, and they really value the person-to-person touch. They really value the time and the connection. That, that B2B relationship, so to speak, is valued in terms of that personal face-to-face connection. But in K-12, while I, I'm not going to diminish there is an aspect of face-to-face, which is important, but the bigger aspect is for that customer to know that you're there for them when the, you need them, or they, when they need you, excuse me. They just want to know that I can reach out and I have somebody that's looking after my back, somebody that knows the challenges I'm having, whether it's adopting new standards, whether it's understanding how to progress monitor my students, whether it's understanding, you know, how much testing is too much testing, right? All these things that are top 
top issues in the K-12 marketplace today. Our customers just want to know that they have somebody that is there to support them, that understands those challenges, and that can be a consultative help to make sure they're doing the right things. And I think the expectations of those customers um, are, are they're varied based on the size of the customer, don't get me wrong, but I think we have seen in our marketplace and we strongly believe that you can still very very handily service and very handily represent and take care of those customers with an inside selling model um, again depending on the size of the customer mm-hmm. so you know greg I, I don't want to try to say that every single customer is that way i mean the, sure. the largest district school districts across the country whether it's uh, new york city public schools or la unified or or chicago public schools they're not the ones that respond the best to an inside-only selling model. Um, so we we had to segment our business and say there's a certain size of customers where the complexity of the district, the complexity of the selling process really warrants someone to be there face-to-face often to understand those nuances. And um, that's why we still have an outside field force that calls on those customers. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of districts across the country that you know have – 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 children per district. The complexity in that district model is not as great. Mm-hmm. And what they really look for is someone to be you know, available for them, can help them quickly, respond to their needs quickly, and suggest and recommend the right thing quickly. And I think that's where an inside selling model um, gives you huge advantages if, if you do it right and if your team really understands what, uh, what that customer is looking for. Yeah, I mean, there's comfort in knowing that help is just a phone call away, right? Absolutely. You know, help is a phone call away. You know, it's interesting, Greg, even in something simple like tech support, um, where we all have personal, both great positive experiences and negative experiences about tech support, um, the thing that I found really interesting when I joined Renaissance is while we have an amazing set of data metrics that show that we typically answer the phone in seven seconds, right? We, we kind of, we have a little bit of overcapacity in order to go do that. Um, but that aside, I think what we found is the usage of our instantaneous chat feature, you know, the thing that we always see when we go to a website and they mm-hmm. say, hey, chat with me here. And, you know, we actually get a lot of customers that do that. And I think the reason why they do that is um, they know that when they're in the heat of the moment, they're trying to use our products, a teacher has a class of 30 kids in front of them, they need to figure something out. It's real easy for them to just click that chat button, get an answer real quick, and then get back to their work. And mm-hmm. um, we, we've received just unbelievable rave kind of uh, 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 rave um, uh, commentary from our customers just saying, hey, they love that and they love the fact that they can get to us. So mm-hmm. uh, being there with them locally is just – being with, there for them, I should say, as you said, Greg, is, is just the critical thing. And we see that in tech support with sales, with everything. And that's really what our customers seem to really value. Yeah. We're talking with Samir Joglakar, EVP of sales for Renaissance Learning, about um – sales structure and uh he's been on the job here for um what is it Let's call it six months and he made a significant sales structural change set up a new channel inside sales channel and he did it very intelligently he worked backwards from the way the customer wanted to be served and uh opened up a new channel and served the customer the way the customer wanted to be served and as a result is uh, is growing his business okay 
Let's pivot a little bit here to sure. one more question about your um, your honeymoon period, as we were laughing about earlier. Okay. So when you look back, let's say, I don't know, in the first 90 days or so, um, you know, there's all this excitement about starting a new job. You know, there was an interview process where, you know, there was a mandate given to you by the CEO. You probably made some commitments. So there's been expectations that have been set. You know, what did you do to get off to a fast start? Um if you were to do anything differently in the first 90 days, would, would you have? What would that be? Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things where um, you always try to reflect on your first 90 days and determine, okay, what, what did I do well? What could we have done differently to improve the situation? And um, I, I guess let, let, me, um, let me talk about two things that just come to mind, um, really, you know, Greg, just chatting about this and thinking out loud. Sure. Um, I, I think one of the things that, I, I mindfully started with, and, and I learned this from some of my mentors over the years, people that I've worked with over the years, is um, first and foremost, don't be afraid to jump in feet first, mm. but just don't overcommit yourself. Mm. And what they mean by that is I think a lot of people, at least I've seen and, and I've tried to make sure I don't do the same thing, um, when they start a new role, when they're, you know, they have kind of a mandate of what they're expecting to be done and what they're looking for of their organization. Yeah, you want to step back and watch and observe for a while, but you can't be too disengaged. I I believe, I firmly believe, it's important to engage immediately, but engage at the proper level such that you're involved, you're being seen as being involved, and you're being seen as being responsive and truly attentive to, to what your organization needs. But be careful in not having to make too many quick, rash decisions without a lot of data, without a lot of information. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's one thing that I set out mindfully, you know, with with the help of Jack, our CEO, we kind of laid out a plan on how we were going to do this. And I think we... You know, I was able to, to do a really good job of getting to that point. I, I tell you, I was joking with one of the associates that works with SBI that, that um, I've known now for a little while. And, uh, you know, nothing like jumping in feet first in the sense, I think it was day 13 on the job for me, um, was up in front of our entire sales organization at our sales kickoff, actually, you know, presenting and speaking to everyone about everything we're going to do in the next year. <laughs> So it's nothing like, you know, trial by fire, get yourself involved in this and, and don't be afraid to get engaged, uh, but just be mindful and careful about what you do. Yeah. So I think that's one thing that I know has worked, served well for me. I would encourage your listeners, encourage anyone that, that I ever chat with, that's, that's something I would uh, encourage them to go do. I think the thing that you got to be careful about, though, and, and you know, I, I would say I probably was... 80, 90% successful in this particular area, there, there are always better things you can do, is, um, is just be careful about, you know, the expectations that you set for your team. Because I think anybody that's going to be walking in as a new sales leader, their team, the, the, their team underneath them, their team that's part of their organization, your first-line management team that's working for you or that's part of your team is going to want they're, – they're, they're going to look at this as their opportunity to say, hey, now this is my chance to get my wish list out there, right? These are all the things I've been looking for, whether it's for personal needs or for their team <laughs> needs or for organizational needs or whatever. Here's the wish list. And um, – I think you just got to be careful of not over-promising on what you're going to be able to deliver um, and then making sure that you can deliver some quick wins to the organization of things that you know are going to help the organization in the long run. So 
I, I think we did a pretty good job. I, I think I did a pretty good job of getting to that point without overcommitting. Um, may have been a couple things I, I overcommitted on that we weren't able to get done, but we're working on them. And um, yeah, I, I, I genuinely feel that overall the team is real happy with the progress we've made in the last uh, four or five months that I've been here. But more importantly, I think the roadmap that we've laid out for the next year on uh, what we're going to get done and how we're going to get it done. Mm-hmm. That's good advice. It really is. I mean, day 13, standing up in front of everybody, that that's the very definition of jumping in with two feet. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's funny. I reflect back on, on that day. It was a little bit, you know, it's funny. Uh, there, there've been other people in the organization, other parts of the organization. I think as you, you said early on, I mean, we're a company of about a thousand people and uh, my organization is, you know, the, the whole org is maybe just under 150. And uh, there are people that I, I got emails from literally two weeks ago saying, hey, remember we talked about this back in July? And I'm like, hey, that was day four on the job for me. I, I don't remember all of that. But uh, but it's great that, that people are drawing affinity back to that time because yeah. it means that um, – you know, the, the impression was made and people uh, were genuinely looking for the leadership that uh, Jack wants me to provide. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here to make our audience aware of a new offer. Making your number is hard. Your problems are complex. Complex problems need complex solutions. Introducing the SBI Magazine. Read in-depth stories written by award-winning journalists about how your peers have overcome their problems to make the numbers. When you need more than a tweet, social post, or blog article, turn to the SBI Magazine. Go to salesbenchmarkindex.com to subscribe. Hope you found that useful. Let's dive back into the dialogue. So you have a new strategy. You're bullish about it. You roll it out. So here's the million-dollar question, I guess the billion-dollar question in your case. Um, How do you make sure the team can execute it? Yeah, so that uh, that is a billion dollar question. <laughs> so um, I, I think um, so. So let's be honest, right? Sales is part science and part art, yep. and I would say art. A lot of that art comes from experience and gut feel and, and experiences that you've had and situations you've been in and how you see people react to those situations. Um, I, I think, to be honest with you, you start to do things early on in your tenure within a new role or new organization. Um, that's where at least I started drawing upon just gut feel and instinctual experience. Um, I had a chance to, again, as I said, you know, our sales kickoff was pretty darn early, and I had a chance to meet face-to-face and engage and interact with a lot of my team pretty early. And not only engage and interact with them, but then watch how they engaged and interacted with their teams. And that, that gave me a pretty good gut feel of the team that I had, their ability to um, internalize and and drive their teams to our objectives, and more importantly, their ability then to go execute. Um, I think that's what gave me greater confidence in our ability to go execute some of these structural changes, at least from a macro point of view. There's, there's still a lot of you know micro things that we're doing to, to optimize. Um, but I think a lot of that, Greg, just gets down to experience and feel. You know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, being an engineer, I hate to say that because I like data, but sometimes it is all about experience and feel. And, um, and that's, that's really how we had, you know, how I had to make those decisions when I joined. Yeah. And it's a tough, it is a judgment call, and that, that's why hiring somebody with all the years of experience that you have is important because 
you know, every organization can only consume so much change at one time. And balancing that is can be tricky at times. It is, it is. And, and I will tell you, Greg, um, you know, the, you've always heard people change, say, right, the one constant in life is change. Yet when, you're, when an individual is brought to the edge of that change, right, and, it, and it's kind of thrust upon him, for a lot of people that's still a very difficult thing to do. It's not natural. It's not a natural human emotion to want to deal with. I think naturally most individuals – uh, that you work with um, like things when it's somewhat status quo, when, when things are familiar, when they're within their comfort zone. Um, the great salespeople, as I know I've seen and I'm sure you've seen and uh, I'm sure your listeners know about and they have them on their teams, the great ones are those that can adapt to that change and still be great over time. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think we all seek. We're, we're all looking for the best people out there. And um, so sometimes watching people as they adjust to that change gives you a real sense of what you have to work with and how well they're going to work uh, as the company continues to evolve. Because the change that I threw at them when I first joined or the company threw at them you know, a couple months before I joined, that's not going to stop. I think mm-hmm. the pace of change is only going to continue to increase as uh, as the demands on businesses increase and as competition increases in the market. So. You know, my, my goal is really to make sure I've got the right members of the team that can adapt to change and, um, you know, a lot of times deal with the, you know, work with the ambiguity that comes with change. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a pretty important quality as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move towards another topic that I want to discuss with you. You know, when I was reviewing your bio, you know, you have many years in big public companies uh, as well as some years in some smaller organizations. Um but it looks like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that this is the first time that you've worked inside of a portfolio company owned by a PE firm. Is that true? Um, actually, no, it, it's okay. not. This is the second organization that uh, I'm working for a portfolio company. A, a little bit earlier in my career, I worked for a portfolio company um, at Instruction, which uh, was acquired and then sold. Um, what is this? Uh, so it was sold about... 16 months ago, 17 months ago. Okay. Very good. If you were, there's people on the, that are listening to this in both camps, those who work for big public companies and those that work for uh, what I would call mid-cap PE firms. Um, And it's a different environment and operating as a sales leader in those two environments can be very different. Help the listeners understand the contrast there. How would you distinguish those two capital structures? Yeah, that, that, it's a great question, um, and I would say, to, to be honest with you, and I think I probably fall into the camp of a lot of your listeners um, wh- where I was in my career five years ago. I really didn't understand the difference five years ago, and five six years ago. And when I joined the portfolio company that I joined at the time, this was. Um, kind of at the very end of the heyday of where a lot of deals were getting done, especially a lot of deals were getting done with a lot of debt um, tied to the deals. So that said, let me talk a little bit about some experiences I've had. I think, first of all, in a public company, and depending on 
the, the level of leadership that you have, and more importantly, the level of exposure I would say you have to the, the overall financials of the public company. Um, you know, I, I, at that time in my career, the largest company I worked for and, and the highest up in the organization I was in was when I was at Dell, when Dell was still a public company before they went private. And um, I was not in a position where I had enough responsibility that I, I was privy to a lot of information prior to, to earnings announcements. So I would say in that sort of situation, while you know, and I had great visibility to how my business was tracking, it was real difficult to have broad context on the entire business, mm-hmm. just because they, you know, there are constraints put around that. Um, and as a result of that, while you know what your objectives were, sometimes it was hard to see the forest through the trees, so to speak, of, of how the overall company was performing and how you can provide, as a leader, how you can provide that context back to your teams of what we're doing and how we need to go execute. I think at the same time, and I don't think anyone is going to, um, uh, probably your listeners are going to nod up and down when I say this, you know, let's be honest, publicly traded companies, you operate on a 13-week cycle, right? <laughs> Everything is on a three-month cycle, and, and that's what folks care about. When you're in a different financial structure, though, and in the private equity world, um, it's been my experience and, you know, my experience in prior lives and, and certainly my experience so far with the firm that we work with, um, they're... they're view on the business is got a much longer horizon. Don't, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that it takes the pressure off the 13-week cycle or the three-month cycle, but um, the pressure is a little bit differently because really what they care about is the long-term value creation that's part of whatever the thesis was as to why they invested or why you know they, they're part of the capital structure. So, what my advice to listeners would be, those at least that um, have a potential of moving into a smaller equity-based firm or something, is really get to understand what that thesis was, really get to understand what the private equity firm that you're working with, or the, the firm in general you're working with, what they care about, and, and really the perspective they come from, whatever their history has been, understand it and, and get an opportunity, seek an opportunity to try to really have an honest conversation about what they're hoping to gain and where they're hoping to take the business. I think the more context you can get for yourself, the better position you're going to be to be able to parlay that context down to your teams and get your teams to execute towards where you need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, we're in a position here at Renaissance Learning where our, you know, we've had a great run so far. By no means do we anticipate it's going to stop. But there's still a lot of value that we can uh, extract from the company and um, a lot of opportunity in the marketplace for us to serve our customers. That, mm-hmm. That's what this is all about for us. How do we continue to grow the footprint we have? And, uh, you know, we serve almost one-third of every K-12 student in the United States today. Some may look at that and say, hey, that's a great market share. That's 33%. <laughs> but I look at that and say, hey, I got 66% to go. And... Um, I think that's part of the investment thesis with us as well, is there, there's still untapped potential in the K-12 world in the United States and also outside the United States. And, and that long-term view is what the PE firm we work with really cares about. Um, so I'm not sure, Greg, if that really answered your question, yeah, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm hoping it gives your listeners some insight as to at least what I've seen without getting into you know gory details of financial. Yeah, yeah and, I, and I'll add to that. You know, we, about a third of our firm, um, is dedicated to the private equity world. We do a lot of business there. They're large consumers of consulting services in general. And, you know, we're often in the board meetings and having conversations with the owners. And what I love about it and why I think it's so refreshing is that it is a long-term horizon. 
it's focused on value creation and what to do with the value once it's created. So how does that benefit the owners? How does that benefit the employees? How does that benefit the customers? You know, it, it's all around what investments do we want to make, which is exciting because that, those are, you know, those lead to growth and growth leads to opportunity for everybody inside of a company. And sometimes in the big, you know, corporate environments, which we do a lot of envir- a lot of work in that space too, it's, uh, it's not necessarily about investments that lead to growth, that lead to opportunity. Sometimes it can be just a cost conversation. You know, how do I do this a little better for a little less? And that's, uh, that's a little different. And you're right, it's, it's every 90 days is a new lease on life, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. In a, in a prior life, we used to always joke that at the end of uh, end of the quarter, we celebrate for about a nanosecond and move <laughs> on to the next quarter. That's about it. Yeah, for sure. We're going to take a break here to make you aware of something that I think will be helpful. So we'll be right back. Want tomorrow's best practices today? Subscribe to the SBI blog. These aren't best practices. These are emerging best practices. Maybe this is why SBI blog readers are the most respected sales and marketing leaders in the world. For your free subscription, go to salesbenchmarkindex.com. All right, well, listen, we're at uh, our time window here, but um, this was a very insightful conversation. Um, we're really pulling for you. We, we love what you do. You know, the product that you deliver and who you deliver to makes an impact on our youth which is the future of our country. So we're, we're really pleased and tickled to be associated with you, and, and we're thrilled that you're there and you're owned by who you're owned and you're led by Jack. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's going to make a big impact. I mean, every day it seems like we're reading something else in the press about how our educational system is failing, and I'm getting a little tired of it. And by going with Renaissance, hopefully we can turn that around. So thanks for all that you do. Well, thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. And uh, I, I think we, all of us, yourself, myself, and even your, your listeners of this podcast, I think we all play an important role in education. So we're, we just happen to be maybe at the focal point of that as a company that plays in that world. But I think it's up to everybody to help challenge our entire system and challenge, uh, challenge our, our, our uh, society here to help improve education for us. So that's what we're all about. That's what our mission is about. And, and we're happy to be doing it. Okay, great. Thanks again. All right. Thanks, Greg. Take care. This has been the SBI Podcast. For more information on SBI services, case studies, the SBI team and how we work, or to subscribe to our other offerings, please visit us at salesbenchmarkindex.com.